0: Essay 18 of The Last Essays of Eliah by Charles Lamb. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Baroness of the imaginative faculty in the productions of modern art. Hogarth accepted. Can we produce any one painter within the last fifty years, or since the humour of exhibiting began, that has treated a story imaginatively? By this we mean, upon whom his subject has so acted, that it has seemed to direct him, and not to be arranged by him. Any upon whom its leading or collateral points have impressed themselves so tyrannically that he dared not treat it otherwise lest he should falsify a revelation any that has imparted to his compositions not merely so much truth as is enough to convey a story with clearness but that individualising property which should keep the subject so treated distinct in feature from every other subject, however similar, and to common apprehensions almost identical, so as that we might say, this, and this part, could have found an appropriate place in no other picture in the world but this. Is there anything in modern art we will not demand that it should be equal?' But in any way analogous to what Titian has effected in that wonderful bringing together of two times in the Ariadne in the National Gallery. Precipitous, with his reeling satire rout about him, repeopling and reillumining suddenly the waste places, drunk with a new fury beyond the grape bacchus born in fire fire-like flings himself at the cretan this is the time present with this telling of the story an artist and no ordinary one might remain richly proud guido in his harmonious version of it saw no further but from the depths of the imaginative spirit titian has recalled past time and laid it contributory with the present to one simultaneous effect, with the desert all ringing with the mad symbols of his followers, made lucid with the presents and new offers of a god, as if unconscious of Bacchus, or but idly casting her eyes as upon some unconcerning pageant, a soul undistracted from theseus ariadne is still pacing the solitary shore in as much heart silence and in almost the same local solitude with which she awoke at daybreak to catch the forlorn last glances of the sail that bore away the athenian here are two points miraculously co-uniting fierce society with the feeling of solitude still absolute noonday revelations with the accidents of the dull grey dawn unquenched and lingering the present bacchus with the past ariadne two stories with double time separate and harmonizing had the artist made the woman one shade less indifferent to the god. Still more had she expressed a rapture at his advent, where would have been the story of the mighty desolation of the heart previous, merged in the insipid accident of a flattering offer met with a welcome acceptance? The broken heart for Theseus, was not likely to be pieced up by a god. We have before us a fine rough print from a picture by Raphael in the Vatican. It is the presentation of the newborn Eve to Adam by the Almighty, a fairer mother of mankind we might imagine, and a goodlier sire perhaps of men since born, but these are matters subordinate to the conception of the situation displayed in this extraordinary production. A tolerably modern artist would have been satisfied with tempering certain raptures of connubial anticipation with a suitable acknowledgement to the giver of the blessing in the countenance of the first bridegroom, a something like, the divided attention of the child adam was here a child-man between the given toy and the mother who had just blessed it with the bauble this is the obvious the first sight view, the superficial an artist of a higher grade considering the awful presence they were in would have taken care to subtract something from the expression of the more human passion and to heighten the more spiritual one this would be as much as an exhibition-goer from the opening of somerset house to last year's show has been encouraged to look for it is obvious to hint at a lower expression yet in a picture that for respects of drawing and colouring might be deemed not wholly inadmissible within these art-bustering walls in which the rapture should be as ninety-nine the gratitude as one or perhaps zero by neither the one passion nor the other has raphael expounded the situation of adam singly upon his brow sits the absorbing sense of wonder at the created miracle. The moment is seized by the intuitive artist, perhaps not self-conscious of his art, in which neither of the conflicting emotions, a moment how abstracted, have had time to spring up, or to battle for indecorous mastery. We have seen a landscape, of a justly admired Neoteric, in which he aimed at delineating a fiction, one of the most severely beautiful in antiquity, the Gardens of the Hesperides. To do Mr. Justice, he had painted a laudable orchard, with fitting seclusion, and a veritable dragon, of which a polypheme by Poussin is somehow a facsimile for the situation, looking over into the world shut out backwards, so that none but a still-climbing Hercules could hope to catch a peep at the admired ternary of recluses. No conventual porter could keep his keys better than this Christos with the lidless eyes. He not only sees that none do intrude into that privacy, but as clear as daylight, that none but Hercules out-diabolus by any manner of means can. So far all is well. We have absolute solitude here or nowhere. Ab extra, the damsels are snug enough but here the artist's courage seems to have failed him he began to pity his pretty charge and to comfort the irksomeness has peopled their solitude with a bevy of fair attendants maids of honour or ladies of the bedchamber according to the approved etiquette at a court of the nineteenth century giving to the whole scene the air of a fete champetre, if we will but excuse the absence of the gentleman. This is well and Watteauish, But what is become of the solitary mystery, the daughters three that sing around the golden tree? This is not the way in which Poussin, would have treated this subject. The paintings, or rather the stupendous architectural designs of a modern artist, have been urged as objections to the theory of our motto. They are of a character we confess to stagger it. His towered structures are of the highest order of the material sublime, whether they were dreams, or transcripts of some elder workmanship, Assyrian ruins old, restored by this mighty artist, they satisfy our most stretched and craving conceptions of the glories of the antique world. It is a pity that they were ever peopled. On that side the imagination of the artist halts, and appears defective. Let us examine the point of the story in the Belshazzar's Feast. We will introduce it by an apposite anecdote. The court historians of the day record that at the first dinner given by the late king, then prince-regent, at the pavilion, the following characteristic frolic was played off the guests were select and admiring, the banquet profuse and admirable, the light lustrous and oriental, the eye was perfectly dazzled with the display of plate, among which the great gold salt-cellar, brought from the regalia in the tower for this especial purpose itself a tower, stood conspicuous for its magnitude. And now the reverend, the then-admired court chaplain, Was proceeding with the grace, when, at a signal given, The lights were suddenly overcast, And a huge transparency was discovered, In which glittered in golden letters, Brighten! Earthquake! Swallow! Up! Alive! imagine the confusion of the guests the georges and garters jewels bracelets moulted upon the occasion the fans dropped and picked up the next morning by the sly court pages mrs fitz-what's-her-name fainting and the countess of pembroke holding the smelling-bottle till the good-humoured prince caused harmony to be restored by calling in fresh candles and declaring that the whole was nothing but a pantomime hoax got up by the ingenious mr farley of covent garden from hints which his royal highness himself had furnished then imagine the infinite applause that followed the mutual rallyings the declarations that they were not much frightened of the assembled galaxy. The point of time in the picture exactly answers to the appearance of the transparency in the anecdote. The huddle, the flutter, the bustle, the escape, the alarm, and the mock-alarm, the prettinesses heightened by consternation, the courtiers' fear which was flattery, and the ladies' which was affectation, all that we may conceive to have taken place in a mob of Brighton courtiers, sympathising with the well-acted surprise of their sovereign. All this, and no more, is exhibited by the well-dressed lords and ladies in the Hall of Belus. Just this sort of consternation, we have seen among a flock of disquieted wild geese at the report only of a gun having gone off. But is this vulgar fright, this mere animal anxiety for the preservation of their persons, such as we have witnessed at a theatre when a slight alarm of fire has been given, an adequate exponent of a supernatural terror the way in which the finger of God writing judgments would have been met by the withered conscience. There is a human fear and a divine fear. The one is disturbed, restless, and bent upon escape. The other is bowed down, effortless, passive. When the spirit appeared before Eliphas in the visions of the night, and the hair of his flesh stood up, was it in the thoughts of the Tamanite to ring the bell of his chamber, or to call up the servants? But let us see in the text what there is to justify all this huddle of vulgar consternation. From the words of Daniel, it appears that Belshazzar had made a great feast to a thousand of his lords, and drank wine before the thousand— the golden and silver vessels are gorgeously enumerated with the princes, the king's concubines, and his wives. Then follows. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosened, and his knees smote one against another. This is the plain text. By no hint can it be otherwise inferred, but that the appearance was solely confined to the fancy of Belshazzar, that his single brain was troubled. Not a word is spoken of its being seen by any else there present, not even by the queen herself, who merely undertakes for the interpretation of the phenomenon as related to her, doubtless, by her husband the lords are simply said to be astonished, i.e., at the trouble and the change of countenance in their sovereign. Even the prophet does not appear to have seen the scroll which the king saw. He recalls it only, as Joseph did the dream to the king of Egypt. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, the Lord, and this writing was written. He speaks of the phantasm as past. Then what becomes of this needless multiplication of the miracle, this message to a royal conscience, singly expressed, for it was said, thy kingdom is divided, simultaneously impressed upon the fancies of a thousand courtiers, who were implied in it neither directly nor grammatically but admitting the artist's own version of the story and that the sight was seen also by the thousand courtiers let it have been visible to all babylon as the knees of belshazzar were shaken and his countenance troubled even so would the knees of every man in babylon and their countenances as of an individual man been troubled bowed bent down so would they have remained stupefixed with no thought of struggling with that inevitable judgment not all that is optically possible to be seen is to be shown in every picture the eye delightedly dwells upon the brilliant individualities in a marriage at Cana, by Veronese, or Titian, to the very texture and colour of the wedding-garments, the ring glittering upon the bride's fingers, the metal and fashion of the wine-pots, for at such seasons there is leisure and luxury to be curious. But in a day of judgment, or in a day of lesser horrors yet divine, as at the impious feast of belshazzar the eye should see as the actual eye of an agent or patient in the immediate scene would see only in masses and in distinction not only the female attire and jewellery exposed to the critical eye of the fashion as minutely as the dresses in a lady's magazine in the criticised picture but perhaps the curiosities of anatomical science and studied diversities of posture in the falling angels and sinners of michael angelo have no business in their great subjects there was no leisure of them by a wise falsification the great masters of painting got at their true conclusions by not showing the actual appearances that is all that was to be seen at any given moment by an indifferent eye but only what the eye might be supposed to see in the doing or suffering of some portentous action Suppose the moment of the swallowing up of Pompeii. There they were to be seen—houses, columns, architectural proportions, differences of public and private buildings, men and women at their standing occupations, the diversified thousand postures, attitudes, dresses, in some confusion truly, but physically they were visible— but what i saw them at that eclipsing moment which reduces confusion to a kind of unity and when the senses are upturned from their proprieties when sight and hearing are a feeling only a thousand years have passed and we are at leisure to contemplate the weaver fixed standing at his shuttle the baker at his oven and to turn over with antiquarian coolness the pots and pans of Pompeii. son stand thou still upon gibea and thou moon in the valley of agelon who in reading this magnificent hebraism in his conception sees aught but the heroic son of nun with the outstretched arm, and the greater and lesser light obsequious. Doubtless there were to be seen hill and dale, and chariots and horsemen, on open plain, or winding by secret defiles, and all the circumstances and stratagems of war. But whose eyes would have been conscious of this array, of the interposition of the synchronic miracle. Yet in the picture of this subject, by the artist of the Belshazzar's feast, no ignoble work either. The marshalling and landscape of the war is everything. The miracle sinks into an anecdote of the day, and the eye, may dart through rank and file traverse for some minutes, before it shall discover, among his armed followers, which is Joshua. Not modern art alone, but ancient, where only it is to be found if anywhere, can be detected erring from defect of this imaginative faculty. The world has nothing to show of the preternatural in painting, transcending the figure of Lazarus bursting his grave-clothes in the great picture at Angersteins. It seems a thing between two beings. A ghastly horror at itself struggles with newly apprehending gratitude at second life bestowed. It cannot forget that it was a ghost it has hardly felt that it is a body. It has to tell of the world of spirits. Was it from a feeling that the crowd of half-impassioned bystanders, and the still more irrelevant herd of passers-by at a distance, who have not heard, or but faintly have been told of the passing miracle, admirable as they are in design and hue for it is a glorified work do not respond adequately to the action that the single figure of the lazarus has been attributed to michael angelo and the mighty sebastian unfairly robbed of the fame of the greater half of the interest now that there were not indifferent passers-by within actual scope of the eyes of those present at the miracle, to whom the sound of it had but faintly or not at all reached, it would be hardihood to deny. But would they see them? Or can the mind in the conception of it admit of such unconcerning objects? Can it think of them at all? Or what associating league to the imagination can there be between the seers and the seers not of a presential miracle. Were an artist to paint upon demand a picture of a dryad, we will ask whether in the present low state of expectation, the patron would not or ought not to be fully satisfied with a beautiful naked figure recumbent under wide stretched oaks, deceit those woods and place the same figure among fountains and falls of pellucid water, and you have a naiad. Not so, in a rough print we have seen after Giulio Romano, we think, for it is long since, there by no process, with mere change of scene, could the figure have reciprocated characters, long, grotesque, fantastic yet with a grace of her own, beautiful in convolution and distortion, linked to her connatural tree, co-twisting with its limbs her own, till both seemed either, these animated branches, those disanimated members, yet the animal and vegetable lives sufficiently kept distinct, his dryad lay an approximation of two natures, which to conceive it must be seen, analogous to, and not the same with, the delicacies of Ovidian transformations. To the lowest subjects, and to a superficial comprehension, the most barren, the great masters gave loftiness and fruitfulness, the large eye of genius saw in the meanness of present objects their capabilities of treatment from their relations to some grand past or future how has a raphael we must still linger about the vatican treated the humble craft of the shipbuilder in his building of the ark it is in that scriptural series to which we have referred and which judging from some fine rough old graphic sketches of them which we possess seem to be of a higher and more poetic grade than even the cartoons the dim of sight are the timid and the shrinking there is a cowardice in modern art as the frenchman of whom coleridge's friend made the prophetic guess at rome from the beard and horns of the moses of michael angelo collected no inferences beyond that of a he-goat and a cornuto so from this subject of mere mechanic promise it would instinctively turn away as from one incapable of investiture with any grandeur the dockyards at Woolwich would object derogatory associations, the depot at Chatham would be the moat and the beam in its intellectual eye, but not to the nautical preparations in the shipyards of Civita Vecchia did Raphael look for instructions, when he imagined the building of the vessel that was to be conservatory of the wrecks of the species of drowned mankind in the intensity of the action he keeps ever out of sight the meanness of the operation there is the patriarch in calm forethought and with holy prescience giving directions and there are his agents the solitary but sufficient three hewing soaring every one with the might and earnestness of a demiurgus under some instinctive rather than technical guidance giant muscled every one a hercules or liker to those vulcanian three that in sounding caverns under mongi Bello wrought in fire parantes and black staropes and pyrarchmon so work the workman, that should repair a world artists again err in the confounding of poetic with pictorial subjects in the latter the exterior accidents are nearly everything the unseen qualities as nothing. Othello's colour, the infirmities and corpulence of a Sir John Falstaff, do they haunt us perpetually in the reading, or are they obtruded upon our conceptions one time for ninety-nine that we are lost in admiration at the respective moral or intellectual attributes of the character? but in a picture Othello is always a blackamoor, and the other only plump jack. Deeply corporealized and enchained hopelessly in the grovelling fetters of externality must be the mind to which, in its better moments, the image of the high-souled, high-intelligenced Quixote the errant star of knighthood made more tender by eclipse has never presented itself divested from the unhallowed accompaniment of a sancho or a rabblement at the heels of a rosinante that man has read his book by halves he has laughed mistaking his author's purport which was tears the artist that pictures quixote and it is in this degrading point that he is every season held up at our exhibitions in the shallow hope of exciting mirth would have joined the rabble at the heels of his starved steed we wish not to see that counterfeited which we would not have wished to see in the reality conscious of the heroic inside of the noble quixote who on hearing that his withered person was passing would have stepped over his threshold to gaze upon his forlorn habiliments and the strange bedfellows which misery brings a man acquainted with shade of cervantes who in thy second part could put into the mouth of thy quixote those high aspirations of a super-chivalrous gallantry, where he replies to one of the shepherdesses, apprehensive that he would spoil their pretty networks, and inviting him to be a guest with them, in accents like these. Truly, fairest lady, Actaeon was not more astonished when he saw Diana bathing herself at the fountain, than I have been in beholding your beauty. I commend the manner of your pastime, and thank you for your kind offers, and if I may serve you, so I may be sure you will be obeyed, you may command me. For my profession is this, to show myself thankful— and a doer of good to all sorts of people, especially at the rank that your person shows you to be, and if those nets, as they take up but a little piece of ground, should take up the whole world, I would seek out new worlds to pass through, rather than break them. And, he adds, that you may give credit to this my exaggeration, behold at least he that promiseth you this is don quixote de la mancha if haply this name hath come to your hearing illustrious romancer were the fine frenzies which possessed the brain of thy own quixote a fit subject as in this second part to be exposed to the jeers of juennas and serving-men to be monstered, and shown up at the heartless banquets of great men, was that pitiable infirmity, which in thy first part misleads him, always from within, into half-ludicrous, but more than half-compassionable and admirable errors, not infliction enough from heaven, that men by studied artifices must devise and practice upon the humour, to inflame where they should soothe it. Why, goneril would have blushed to practice upon the abdicated king at this rate, and the she-wolf Regan not have endured to play the pranks upon his fled wits, which thou hast made thy quixote suffer in duchesses' halls, and at the hands of that unworthy nobleman footnote yet from this second part our cried-up pictures are mostly selected the waiting-women with beards etc in the first adventures even it needed all the art of the most consummate artist in the book way THAT THE WORLD HATH YET SEEN TO KEEP UP IN THE MIND OF THE READER THE HEROIC ATTRIBUTES OF THE CHARACTER WITHOUT RELAXING, SO AS ABSOLUTELY THAT THEY SHALL SUFFER NO ALLOY FROM THE DEBASING FELLOWSHIP OF THE CLOWN. IF IT EVER OBTRUDES ITSELF AS A DISHARMONY, ARE WE INCLINED TO LAUGH, OR NOT RATHER TO INDULGE A CONTRARY EMOTION? Cervantes, stung perchance by the relish with which his reading public had received the fooleries of the man more to their palates than the generosities of the master, in the sequel let his pen run riot, lost the harmony and the balance, and sacrificed a great idea to the taste of his contemporaries. We know that in the present day, the knight has fewer admirers than the squire, anticipating what did actually happen to him, as afterwards it did to his scarce inferior follower, the author of Guzman de Alfarache, that some less knowing hand would prevent him by a spurious second part, and judging that it would be easier for his competitor to outbid him in the comicalities than in the romance of his work, he abandoned his knight and has fairly set up the squire for his hero. For what else has he unsealed the eyes of Sancho, and instead of that twilight state of semi-insanity, the madness at second-hand, the contagion caught from a stronger mind infected, that war between native cunning, and hereditary deference with which he has hitherto accompanied his master two for a pair almost does he substitute a downright knave with open eyes for his own ends only following a confessed madman and offering at one time to lay if not actually laying hands upon him from the moment that Sancho loses his reverence, Don Quixote is become a treatable lunatic. Our artists handle him accordingly. End of Essay 18